This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by IHG Hotels and Resorts, home to some of the world's most well-loved hotel brands in more than 100 countries. Its commitment to protect the planet and care for communities comes naturally to a business that stands for providing true hospitality for everyone. Visit IHGPLC.com for more information. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the sights and sounds of Verge 20, why Carbon Tech is getting ready for its market moment, why entrepreneurs are getting into the fix-it business, and the top 25 most sustainable fleets. We're on the move this week on 350. It's October 30th, 2020. Welcome to this Verge Week edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me virtually from Midland Park, New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. Are you tired? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's not the same doing virtual events as it is in a hotel or convention center. I miss everybody. I miss uh, the, you know, hanging out with people. I miss, mm-hmm. it's not the same drinking by yourself at 2 a.m. No, mm. I'm not doing that. But, um, <laughs> oh, hmm. but, but it, but it's just as exhausting doing a virtual event as it is doing a, re, a, a traditional in-person one. And so, yeah, it was an exhausting week. It was, uh, and I mean, a part of that is because usually Verge takes place over three, maybe mm-hmm. three and a half days. This week it was five days, only five or six hours a day. But it was uh, Monday through Friday sessions, and that's a lot. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's a lot for us, but that's a lot for the audience, too. So I want to commend the audience. I know there are people who stuck with us every day. They were there and chiming in and, you know, showing up. And and thank you for that. And, and, And thousands and thousands of others who came by for a day or two or three or part of a day or whatever it was. We're glad you glad you were there. Yeah. Totally. I I love the fact that we had so many international people that someone threw up a map um, and there were we had people from all over the world. And that, uh, I love the in-person event, don't get me wrong, and I miss it horribly as well. But I love that so many new faces, if you will, were there and that, um, you know, were able to share this amazing content. There were just so many great sessions. I had to yank myself away from a bunch of them. <laughs> I didn't want them to end, you know. And uh, I just really was grateful for the international attention that that the event had. Yeah, and obviously people don't have to get on planes or book hotels. 
Um, they can tune in from wherever, and they did. And we always get a certain amount of international uh, audience, but this was was so much more, and it was so much more audience. We had close to ten thousand people who tuned in for summer all of this week's festivities, and and it was really great. But you know what? In this program. We're going to get into, we're going to play a bunch of clips. We're going to talk about some of the sessions. We're going to have a, a little bit of uh, the event in review. But um, let's start off with the weekend review. And I want to start this week with a piece by you, Heather, on the topic of carbon tech. And it's title of is Carbon Tech is getting ready for its market moment. Heather, what is Carbon Tech? <laughs> so I like to think of Carbon Tech, and I, I, it's not just me that thinks this way, as not just removal, but of turning carbon into value, um, of, of taking the excess carbon dioxide that we don't want in the atmosphere and using it for some other purpose. So for example, sustainable aviation fuel. It, it, it's, a, it's a feedstock for some of the, the companies that are working on that. Or concrete, uh, or as I mentioned in a, a segment that I did earlier this week at Verge, uh, vodka, right? So there's, there's just so many interesting ways of turning carbon into a valuable product. So carbon tech is the category of removal technologies and uh, processing technologies that turn it into something valuable. And I kind of went on a rant about this, but what, what the thing that really has me intrigued is that there's so many corporations that are really trying to lean into investments in, in this area. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example of, you know, I, I, I hate to use them always as an example, but one of the most intriguing things that Microsoft has done recently was to actually commit to buying sustainable aviation fuel for the most popular routes flown by its employees between Seattle and Silicon Valley. Now you know better than me that you know it, that doesn't mean that the jet is all is using just that sustainable fuel. It's it's a mix. But um, by becoming a customer for this technology, Microsoft is helping um, draw more attention to it, and it's it's putting some much needed corporate investment into the space. So that's what I'm on about this week. Yeah, it's, I mean, and two of the things you didn't mention, well, they both have to do with polymers. You can turn carbon dioxide. And and by the way, it's not just CO2 as greenhouse gases, methane, uh, and maybe some other gases that are problematic to the climate are also possible if you can capture them and turn them into polymers that become plastics, they can become textiles. They're showing up in fashion, uh, certainly showing up in, in, in new kinds of materials for all sorts of things. So a lot of a lot of potential there, but I I think that potential is the key word there because it feels like this has been talked about for a long time that you could do these sort of things, um, and yeah, there's this carbon tech. This term I know I don't know who's coined it, but I know that we're, we've sort of been leaning into it and uh, popularizing it a little bit, and we're going to continue doing that more and more over the next uh, while, next number of months and years. Do you think it's finally kind of here or does it still feel like a bunch of this would be really cool at scale, but it's just not there yet? So I think, well, first of all, I think it is, we're hitting the tipping point. I'm not saying we're like totally in it, right? But the, the signs are pointing there. And I and I really do believe that the corporate interest is, is what's, well, that's what's really driving my 
my theory on this. Uh, I'll give you another example, this carbon to value initiative. It's a, a project by the uh, Greentown Labs folks, NYU Tandon and Fraunhofer TechBridge. And they have come up with this initiative to support, you know, it's, a, it's an acceleration initiative. We, we know that there are many of those, but the council behind it is very intriguing. Johnson Matthey, uh, W.L. Gore, Mitsubishi Chemicals, Energy, Suez. So there's big companies that have um, footprints in, as you mentioned, chemicals, building products, right, that are trying to turn this into something commercial. And I think that that corporate interest is what, for me, makes this different than before. It, there's a report out from the Circular Carbon Network this week that uh, is tracking 61 multinational companies that are heavily involved, actively involved in this and, and starting to put put more muscle behind it and money. And aside from Microsoft, you've got Amazon, Delta, Lafarge, which is, of course, a, another big industrial company, Nike, Starbucks. Cement, yeah. Yep, cement, yep. Interface, you know, some 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 usual suspects and some not so usual suspects. So there's a, there's also a lot more money, and 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 it's not just because of the the tax incentives that were introduced recently. I think there's just there's more carbon removal commitments at the corporate level, and beyond the carbon offsets, people need to have technologies there that they can actually use to remove the carbon. Right. So that people are looking long term, and and the money is starting to go there. Well, speaking of big corporates driving change, let's talk about the top 25 most sustainable fleets. This is a piece that uh, our senior writer and transportation analyst, Katie Fehrenbacher, did. And I, I uh, assume it's an annual or will be an annual. I can't remember if she's done this in the past, but it's a great, great list of uh, an, an annotated list of 25 companies that have uh, the basically the biggest sustainable fleets, and you know we talk we talk about fleets, electric vehicles, hydrogen powered vehicles, and, and such. We typically think about about passenger automobiles, since that's what we all experience with out of the market or probably on the street. But we're talking about you know long haul semi trucks, uh, the bucket trucks that utilities use to fix power lines, the delivery vans from. Amazon and UPS and FedEx and uh, a whole range of things, including um, you know companies that are using scooters as part of their fleets, which has been included in this. So, uh, you know, to your point, Heather, about um, uh, the carbon tech is that there's a lot of companies you'd expect to see here, Amazon, for example, uh, or, or FedEx, uh, but Genentech or IKEA, uh, you know, it's the city of Oakland, California, uh, PepsiCo, Portland General Electric, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a lot of utilities actually and energy companies and cities. But it's really great to start putting this out there. I love that she did this and I love that we can all now see who's leading the pack. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the things that really stood out is some of the infrastructure investments that all of these companies are making. And that's that for me was like a common theme that ran through them. They're all having to put money into making sure that the fuel is in place, whether that's an electric charger, you know, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, or these renewable natural gas networks that people have to, uh, to help invest in to make this work. So these are true pioneers of, of change and, and it's, it's, it's not easy. 
No, that's a really good point. It, it's not a build it or buy the vehicles and they will come. They being the, the refueling infrastructure, it's 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 a slog. I, I did a session this week at Verge around sustainable aviation and what will it take to you know part of the theme. What will it take to create the market for sustainable aviation fuels? Because the airlines that are using it, uh, United out of LAX, um, JetBlue out of SFO. Uh, you know, they're using a tiny fraction under 1%. That's all they have the demand for and the infrastructure for. So it's not simply we wish we could do more. And so therefore it appears. And I think that's true here when you have hydrogen powered uh, fleets, when you have vehicles that need electric recharging uh, or any other alternative fuels. Uh, this is a big challenge and this is a constraint for a lot of companies. And you'll notice that I would say of these 25 without counting, I would say probably close to 20, maybe even more, are fleets that show up every night in the same place. They, they come back to headquarters, they come back to a parking lot or a service garage where they can refuel and recharge. Um, so it's not, they're not relying on a public infrastructure to do that. And I think that's obviously one important factor. So our final piece this week is a, uh, an article by our contributor Elsa Wenzel. She's our senior editor with greenbiz.com and it's on Kim Forward, which is a initiative uh, nonprofit backed by quite a few leading companies, including Sephora, Target, Levi's, Steelcase, Method, Apple is, is involved, but they're focusing on how to really develop safe and circular chemistry. So I, I, I love this piece because it, it sort of outlines the the, the challenges that product designers have in figuring out what is a good chemical or what substance can you put in this product and what is this better than that product? And there really isn't a way of, of doing that in a, in a very simple uh, process at this time. So the, the, the goal of this organization is to help drive towards a process where it is simpler to, to make those decisions. Um, it, it, it actually, was born out of the Cradle to Cradle's Products Innovation Institute and is now part of the Healthy Building Network. So I think that's also notable as well because a lot of these, these substances are in around us, right? They're all around us. They're on us. They're probably in us. Um, and and th these organizations are driving toward how they can, they can make better decisions on design. Yeah, and, and the, the magnitude of this problem is staggering. There's somewhere over 80,000 different industrial chemicals in use. I don't think anybody really knows exactly how many, uh, but although EPA says it's a fraction of that, it's less than 9,000 or about a tenth of that. But uh, those who do keep track, particularly from a toxicity point of view, look at the, both the, the gross number, that, again, probably over 80,000, and the number that's actually been tested for on human health, it's, it's a tiny fraction. Uh, and... Um, uh, and what's great about this is it sounds like pooling of resources and creating a centralized uh, database and looking at being able to give uh, a grade, a letter grade, plain and simple, to each of these chemicals. It's an A, it's B, it's a CDF. Uh, and, uh, you know, we saw this in the textile and apparel industry where, where companies like uh, Aveda and Patagonia and now pretty much every company uh, in that space has started using some of these collective or joint rating and ranking systems to assess the components of their apparel, um, the different 
synthetic and natural ingredients and from any number of perspectives. Um, and now we're taking this out into the the overall economy, which is uh, huge, literally and figuratively, uh, uh, move forward. So I think this has great potential. And I love the fact that they brought in people from leadership companies uh, like uh, Target and Apple and others who have been doing this for some time. And again, the Cradle to Cradle Product Innovation Institute, the Healthy Building Network, as you mentioned, uh, pooling a lot of really good resources. And um, and and I think this is going to go a long way, uh, not just in detoxifying uh, industry, but ultimately in helping create more circular products and materials and resources mm-hmm. because you don't want to keep circulating mm-hmm. those tax- toxic chemicals over and over, uh, particularly in an open system uh, where it can get into the air and water. Exactly. As you heard us discuss earlier, this week was Verge Week. And so as is our tradition, we will be featuring highlights from some of the sessions uh, that that occurred throughout the week. And of course, uh, we'll be doing this for the next couple of episodes as well. We have uh, several clips from the early part of the week, and I just want to actually kick it over to Joel first because we had Lisa Jackson from Apple, and um, terrific interview that that opened the conference. And um, you know, Joel, some what are some of your impressions of of your discussion? I'm just curious. You know, I haven't really had a chance to debrief with you. Yeah, no, we haven't. <laughs> I haven't seen you all week. Where have you been? Um, that was great. This is uh, the third or maybe even the fourth time we've had Lisa Jackson on the Verge stage starting in t- 2013 in her first year at Apple after leaving the uh, Obama first administration as head of U.S. EPA. This year, we focused a lot on how the company is integrating a lot of its sort of bold ambitions around environmental issues, for example, you know, totally circular materials that they no longer mine aluminum to make our, you know, MacBooks or, or, uh, iPhone cases that it's all coming from old aluminum from, from current models and so many other things around forestry and uh, renewable energy procurement. They're aligning all of those things with racial inequity and climate justice and uh, environmental justice as well. Um, And using its buying power, using its influence, using its uh, education platforms, uh, using its voice to to steer work towards communities of color, black and brown communities, as Lisa describes it. Um, And I just found that was that was remarkable. Uh, But I also found remarkable uh, something that she we talked about that uh, she had said uh, prior to this, it, she said, maybe we shouldn't take on climate change. Maybe we should take on justice. And by doing so, we can solve mm-hmm. the climate crisis, yeah. which I just found uh, sort of a remarkable statement that I mean, because we've we you know we've talked for a while and, you know, well before the pandemic about how the climate crisis, the and now the pandemic, the public health crisis the biodiversity crisis, the economic crisis, all have same similar roots in inequality. And uh, uh, there's a number of environmental issues that all come to the head in, in all of those things as well. But we don't talk about, you know, we don't talk about actually let's deal with the justice issues and the other stuff will, 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 will come along for the ride. So I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, 
I didn't realize this, but, but she talked about why this was so personal to her and discussed her, her background and her, her, her early childhood in New Orleans. And so that, that was one of the moments in, in your discussion with her that I wanted to cue up. And so here is her talking about why this is personal. I, I grew up in New Orleans. I know what it means to be at the receiving end of uh, our industrial society, whether it's the air quality coming from petrochemical facilities upwind or the water quality coming down the Mississippi River or the Gulf of Mexico's health and that ecosystem and diversity. All those issues conflate to me around a place I call home, right? And so as I've thought during this time, especially with COVID-19, we all saw the study that said that part of what's contributing to the impacts of COVID-19 is air quality. So I started to think if we had focused on those environmental justice issues, those fence line communities that for years and years have been telling us, look, it is not healthy to be here. They are unfortunately the same communities who were sort of the first wave of the health impacts of, of pollution on our society. And I guess to me, it all comes together because we know that the co-pollutants of CO2 from fossil fuel and um, from the fossil fuel uh, burning power sector and transportation sectors are all part of that justice equation. If you add on that, the fact that, again, I'm from New Orleans, I know firsthand that low-lying areas that during times of racial segregation, and larger issues of racism around the world, oftentimes when land use decisions are made in rooms, the land that's most susceptible to flooding or most susceptible to wildfire, the exurbs, the cheaper land is given to communities that are less well off. And so then they're on the front line again of dealing with the flooding, the droughts, now the climate fires. I heard someone say, call them climate fires, but the wildfires that we see um, proliferating in our time. So again, it's a justice issue. How do the resources of our world, which flow up to the people who make these land use decisions and profit from them, but they're not flowing to the people who are now victims? And I think those are the questions we have to solve if we're really going to solve the climate crisis. And then for me, the other thing that I wanted to highlight, Joel, was the circular economy and, and how you get to processes that are that are more safe for humans and not just safe for humans in the in the physical sense, but in you know, their well-being, their their livelihoods and so forth. Um, and so the she made the connection between climate justice and the circular economy strategy at Apple. And uh, here's why they chose to focus on conflict minerals. When we started to look at the circular supply chain and prioritize where to go first, we prioritized things like conflict minerals. We prioritized rare earth elements for two reasons. One, because of the labor and supply chain difficulties around conflict minerals, as much as we want to continue to engage in communities to try to lift up the standards and use our purchasing power to lift up, we also had to be honest with ourselves and say, there's also a need for us to show an alternative path so that if these um, mining operations, however they're organized, just cannot come into a better situation with respect to supply chain, environment, and labor issues, we need an alternative. And that alternative is already out in the world in our products, in the, in the incredibly 
you know, high quality materials that go into our products. So it was at both an effort to prioritize the places where the most potential for harm could be, but also to give us an alternative because that gives us bargaining power. If we can come up with a cleaner alternative, then our belief is that these other places will have no alternative but to clean up as well so that they can be competitive, not just on an economic level, but on a social and environmental level as well. So we also heard from Andrew Zoli uh, from Planet. I have to tell you that I, that was right after my Lisa Jackson interview, so I missed some of that, but mm-hmm. what did I miss? Well, so I just want to say that one of the things that I do appreciate about the virtual conference format is people can come in from anywhere, right? Drop in. And so Andrew Zoli with Planet, uh, he's a he's a great thinker. He, he focuses on social impact. Planet being a, an organization that, that thinks about how to use technologies and so forth for for the good, for the greater good. And he dropped in from a, a, a bench in in Minnesota, um, where he regularly meditates, um, and he did his talk from there. And, uh, you know, as you might expect, and, and as it was referenced often um, in talks this this week, he he spoke about how the pandemic is is helping reframe and reset uh, the, the thinking about the climate crisis. And he described it as, as one long emergency. So here's uh, his thoughts on one long emergency. You know, for the next two or three years, the public health emergency of COVID is going to be front and center. Right behind it, there's a huge economic crisis. We've just spent enormous amounts of money. We've mortgaged some parts of our children's future, and we're going to have to think differently about how to organize on the other side of that and deal with that crisis. And on the other side of that, there's a kind of intergenerational crisis, I think, of institutions and, and of the social contract. And cutting through all of that really are the twin crises of, of the climate crisis and the loss of nature. So we have a lot of work to do. You know, I think everybody here feels, and I, I hope you feel, just how consequential this moment is and how consequential our choices are. We, we have to see through the complexity now as never before. I've been doing a lot of work with this organization that's based in Greece, and I, I was talking with them about this concept of crisis and an ancient Greek scholar took me aside and he said, you know, the word crisis is not rooted in emergency. It's actually in the original etymology, it's, it's rooted in a kind of separation, a, a moment of choice, an election to go in one direction or another. And that's the moment we're in. We're in a moment of really profound choice. And unfortunately, I think the, we bring to that moment a really deeply pessimistic culture. Even before COVID, people who study, like the folks at Edelman who study global optimism found that across the West, there was just a drop in in optimism about the even the medium term future. And that's led to a deep loss of faith in institutions. And no institution in society now is seen as both competent and trustworthy. And that's a profound crisis for us that, that undergirds our ability to act in any meaningful way. And yet, at the same time, the thing that I see is we've given everybody around the world this fleeting, if extraordinarily painful glimpse of what a lower carbon future might look like. The the awe and reverence that people had when they saw the skies clear and, and when we saw people come back, nature come back, 
uh, into our communities in a matter of weeks in some instances. I, just extraordinary. And there is political pregnancy in that moment, in that opportunity, showing people that another world is possible. You know, in, in China, in the same period that 5,000 people lost their lives to COVID, uh, some colleagues of ours from Stanford found that some 70,000 seniors and, and 4,000 children under the age of five had their lives dramatically extended because of just the temporary reduction in air pollution, which is such a critical fact. And then, of course, the other big story is of this year is really about the moment when the political conscience of a generation snapped sharply into focus. The, the opportunity to connect climate activism and the, the enduring quest for racial and social justice must merge. There, you know, we cannot have an environmental movement that is now not actively anti-racist. They're just part of the same thing. And then there was Bill McKibben, the longtime activist and author, co-founder of the nonprofit 350.org and lots of other movements that have been taking place. Um, we had a great interview with our colleague, Sarah Golden, who's our chief energy analyst at Green Biz and Verge. And, you know, it was just interesting because we don't, it's harder to get Bill talking about what companies should be doing. In other words, he's really good at criticizing companies and he is rightfully so, particularly the fossil fuel companies. But it's harder, I found in the past to say, well, what do you want? You know, what, what would you like to see companies doing? And that's one of the places that Sarah pressed him, which I definitely appreciated that. But what have you queued up from Bill? Well, exactly that. She did press him <laughs> okay. on, on that, 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 point of discussion and how companies can be more authentic in their storytelling. And, and he, here's his answer. Well, I think that I, I do think that it's most impressive when you get people cooperating across industries to tell a story together. But I also think that companies really can start to, to tell the story to, if they really have a genuine story to tell as part of this story of their own progress towards understanding what justice and solidarity are coming to mean. I mean, we've got to move out of a world where we see it as simply a zero-sum game where companies fight with each other for to be the biggest or the best or grow the fastest or whatever. Um, people have to, have to understand that at this point in Earth's history and human history, this requires something much deeper, more profound. So I, I think that probably corporations would be wise to be very humble in their storytelling about all this. Uh, people have good antennae now for anything that smacks of greenwashing. Um, you know, they've come to understand that the more penguins there are in the ad, the more damage you're probably doing to the environment. So I, I would be careful of that. And I'd be serious about making contact in real ways with all the stakeholders, and especially those in the most vulnerable communities and the people who are hit the hardest. For our next segment, I'm joined by an executive from one of our Verge 20 sponsors, J.P. Morgan Chase. 
Marissa Buchanan is Managing Director and Head of Sustainability for the financial services firm. She plays an integral role in J.P. Morgan's efforts to manage environmental and social risks and to advance environmentally sustainable solutions for clients and its operations. Marissa, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me, Heather. Great to be here. J.P. Morgan Chase has dedicated at least $200 billion, probably more, to financing ESG and clean economy initiatives. It's been a pretty eventful autumn also for your organization. In early October, J.P. Morgan Chase adopted a Paris-aligned financing commitment. What is the goal of this strategy, and will you start with particular industries? So, Heather, earlier this year at our Investor Day in February, J.P. Morgan Chase announced a commitment to facilitate $200 billion in financing for companies and projects that help to advance the goals of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, specifically climate action, social, and economic development. Uh, we're really proud of that, and that really helps to build on the efforts that we've been making in recent years to advance action on, on sustainability and climate. Um, and then we followed up in October uh, to announce a new Paris-aligned financing commitment. So this for us is really about uh, aligning our financing activities in three key industries where we're going to start oil and gas, electric power, and automotive manufacturing. And our goal here is to, you know, over the long term, uh, work with clients that are operating responsibly, reducing their emissions, and positioning their long-term business strategy in alignment with the goals of the Paris Agreement. So what will this mean for your clients, and how will you disclose progress towards this goal? So we're currently working right now to develop our methodology. We've been hard at work uh, on this for a number of months and have a lot of people focused on this internally. Uh, there's been a lot of great work out there done in the industry writ large, but you know, Paris alignment is, is challenging. Um, and we decided to make this commitment because we know that you know, we're not gonna meet the goals of Paris unless you know, greater, greater number of businesses step up and say, this is really critical. We may not have all the answers today, but we're never gonna get there unless we try. Um, so, you know, this effort for us is really about thinking about how we measure the climate performance of our clients on a more systematic basis. And then what we're going to aim to do is set uh, emission reduction targets for these three industries, oil and gas, electric power, and automotive manufacturing. Um, these targets for 2030 will be long-term, recognizing that companies just can't necessarily overnight um, you know, make significant changes. So this is about saying, we have our eye on a long-term vision. We want to work with you and support you in your emission reduction strategies. Um, transition is going to be incredibly important, which is why we're growing our capacity uh, on that front as well to better serve our clients and really look forward to doing what we can to drive greater action on this critically important issue. Yeah, so I talk to a lot of companies that are leaders in, in climate strategy, and I, but I know there's a far greater number of companies that really don't exactly know where to start. So what role will J.P. Morgan Chase play in helping its corporate and commercial banking clients with their own transitions? 
We were really excited uh, to announce uh, with the Paris Align Financing Commitment that we're setting up a new front office group that is going to straddle our corporate and investment bank and our commercial banking business. And this group is going to be at the forefront of working with our clients to provide green finance, advisory solutions, research solutions. Um, you know, this is all in the spirit of growing our internal capacity to better support our clients with their long-term sustainability and climate objectives. And what I think is so exciting about this is that, you know, this group really sits in the business, which is revenue generating. We see this not just as a environmental imperative, but as a business opportunity. And, you know, we see so many more of our clients now in many different industries setting really aggressive sustainability and climate goals. Um, they are looking for, you know, financial capital, investment, advice, and we're really excited to, you know, be the bank that is going to be there to support their transition goals. And as you said, you know, transition is is going to look different for different industries and even different for companies within the same industry. Um, you know, so many of the emissions that, um, you know, we have globally to manage come from key sectors like heavy transport, manufacturing, and industry, where today there are not commercially available emission reduction solutions. Um, you know, wind and solar and the growth in those industries has been phenomenal. Um, but if we're really going to tackle climate change, we need to think about how we get deep reductions in these other sectors um, where we don't have solutions today. So this is going to be something that we want to figure out with our clients, and we're really excited to be building the capacity to do that. We've been talking mostly about mitigation. How is J.P. Morgan Chase thinking about the need for greater resilience and adaptation? This is such an important issue, Heather, because we know that even if we get to Paris, there is still a certain degree of warming that has already been locked in. And, you know, communities all around the world are really facing the impacts of that. Drought, flood, hurricanes, you know, storms of greater intensity. These are things that we have to find a way to manage. Um, and it's also so important because we know that when disaster strikes, it is typically, you know, low and moderate income communities and communities of color that bear the greatest impact. So we've been really excited over the past year and a half to be stepping up our efforts at JP Morgan to support efforts to strengthen community resilience to climate change. So uh, we have a partnership with the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, which is working with a whole range of nonprofit organizations and other partners in key areas that historically have you know, faced significant climate-related threats. And we are making targeted investments to, uh, to really do three things. One, help communities better identify their vulnerabilities to climate-related disaster. Two, identify tailored solutions to those specific threats. And then three, engage low-income and uh, communities of color in the process to really implement these solutions. So we're excited about this work um, and uh, look forward to, to growing our impact over time there. 
One last question. JP Morgan Chase declared its intention to source 100% renewable energy starting this year. Now it's pledging to become carbon neutral for its operations by the end of this year. So how will you accomplish this? So uh, we will accomplish this goal in a few ways. Um, with our 100% renewable energy target, we're making significant investments to increase energy efficiency. We're going out and we're installing renewable uh, in solar capacity on as many buildings and branches as possible. We actually have the second largest commercial solar installation at our uh, large campus in Columbus, Ohio. And we're going out and we're buying renewable power um, in cases where we can't actually procure that power ourselves. We're going out and we're buying renewable energy certificates um, to make up the difference. And you know, really our goal with this strategy over time is to grow our impact by taking steps that bring new renewable generation capacity onto the grid. We're also offsetting 100% of emissions from employee air travel um, through the purchase of carbon offsets. And we're also gonna be doing that for our scope one emissions that stem from our uh, buildings and branches, again, operation of you know, generators and um, you know, heat and so on and so forth. So we're really excited about this and uh, you know, look forward to continue growing our work um, on sustainability and climate in the future. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me, Heather. It's been great. You just heard from Marissa Buchanan, Managing Director and Head of Sustainability for J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor at GreenBiz, and I'm joined by Sandra Goldmark, founder of FixUp, a social enterprise in New York City. She's also a theater set and costume designer, a leader in the field of sustainable theatrical design, director of the Sustainability and Climate Action Program, and associate professor of professional practice at Barnard College. Thank you for joining GreenBiz 350. Thank you so much for having me. So we are here to talk about Fixation, your book, um, which has the subhead, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. Um, and the book came out in September. But before we chat about the book, I'm curious if you can answer um, this question about your social enterprise called Fix Up. Um, can you tell me about that work that you were doing before the release of the book and also the impact that it has had since launching it in 2013? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the book is really, Fixation is really the story of our repair shop. So as you mentioned, I was um, I'm originally a theatrical designer and I teach at Barnard College. And about seven years ago, I was home on maternity leave and a bunch of stuff broke around my house. And I was um, maybe sleep deprived or maybe stubborn. And I just like didn't want to buy new stuff. And I started trying to figure out um, if I could get it fixed. And it was, of course, not surprisingly, very challenging to get my lamp and my vacuum and my toaster and my backpack all fixed in an easy way, um, especially with a newborn. And I thought, this is crazy. Because um, in theater, we fix things all the time, right? If there's a broken backpack and we need to use it on stage or a broken vacuum, we fix it and we, it goes out on stage. So I thought, um, I long story short, I decided, well, the first part was I wrote a big letter to Walmart and I said, you need to put a repair shop in the corner of every Walmart. Um, and, uh, and I showed it to my husband and he said, well, 
I says, great. He's so supportive. But he was like, I'm not sure Walmart is going to read your letter. <laughs> and I was like, why not? But so we decided to get some more data. We started opening our first little repair shop. Um, and it, it was a big success in our community. And we went on to operate a dozen repair shops all around New York, or more than a dozen in different neighborhoods. They were short pop-ups, about three, two to four weeks and educational events. And we fixed um, over those seven years, over 2,500 broken objects, um, diverted 10,000 pounds of waste from landfill and diverted much, much more waste from new manufacturing that was avoided upstream. Um, and most importantly, we spent a lot of time with these objects, understanding their design, um, their full life cycle and their owners. Were there any other learnings um, that you got from like talking to owners of all of these different products? Yeah, that was the most, that's the whole reason I wrote the book is it, we called it stuff therapy. It was hilarious. People would bring like their lamp or their toaster and instead of just putting it down, they would put it down and start talking and they would tell us how they felt about it and where it fit in their house and how it broke and why they wanted to fix it. And, and I'm not just talking about like your sentimental, you know, your mom's wedding album or your antique chair like these were just like black plastic window fans and greasy toasters and yet there was this really deep sort of well of um complexity surrounding these objects and surrounding their their life cycle essentially and so we started really listening to our customers and i started really thinking about a how it was very clear that they were not happy with the system that they were looking for alternatives to this kind of linear use and discard thing and b really interesting for me as a you know budding uh, business owner at that time they were willing to pay for an alternative so um you talking about that and also you mentioning writing a letter to walmart uh, made me think about uh, the right to repair movement and i'm curious how you see uh, the work that you're doing and also your book as tied to that movement. So right to repair for maybe people who don't know is this really amazing legislative push in many states across the country to get some policy in place to guarantee repairability for different items ranging from electronics all the way up to big giant tractors um, and more. Um, and I am I'm a big fan of right to repair. Uh, I believe that repair just needs to be part of the life cycle of an object. I believe that repair needs to be able to happen at multiple points. So I should be able to fix something myself. I also want to be able to drop it off with an independent repair provider in my neighborhood. And I also want the company, the manufacturer to offer repair services. To me, it's like an ecosystem um, of care and maintenance that we need to build back into every level of society and right to repair is a really exciting way to address that and support it from a policy perspective. Definitely. So shifting gears a little bit, um, I'm curious about what your motivation was to write the book and also what you hope readers take away, whether that's like actually taking action mm -hmm. or them as individuals or whether they're working um, inside of a company. My motivation for writing the book was after working with so many objects and um, learning that it was possible to fix them. We fixed 85% of the objects that came through our door. Um, learning that people were willing to pay for it uh, and listening to people talk about their dissatisfaction um, with this kind of bigger pattern that they're stuck in made me feel like, hey, there's there's something to to, to do here. I want to connect the dots. Like I really wanted to not just write a book about repair, but to write a book about 
using repair as a way in to look at this full cycle of consumption. And then hopefully, I really lean heavily on Michael Pollan's work in the book because I think food and stuff are very similar. And I think Michael Pollan has done such a beautiful job of exploring the complexity of food from a from a environmental, a social, a personal angle, and yet providing really clear steps forward. And I'm trying to do the same for stuff, to acknowledge that this is big, this is complex, this is part of who we are as human beings, right? Like, let's just like acknowledge that we need stuff, material goods to survive. We we make objects with tools, like that's what we do, <laughs> all human cultures. And so to acknowledge the complexity and the beauty actually of this part of our lives and also acknowledge there's some big, big, big problems and hopefully say, here's a path forward. Here's what individuals can do, simple, um, concrete um, steps. Here's how businesses can support and tap into these uh, you know, pathways and use it to transform their business models. And to some degree, here's the policy steps we need to support it. So you write about the importance of switching or transitioning from a linear to a circular economy in the book. And something that I was curious about is like what you think it would take for us as individuals and also like large corporations to like truly make the transition. Um, I feel like you started answering that, but if you have anything more um, outside of what you've already shared. Mm. I think for individuals, so in the book, I, I again, I kind of um, adapt Michael Pollan's food advice, which was eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I adapt that for stuff. So have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. So if you, my thinking is if you think about each of those as a very simple step, like when you buy new, here's here's how to think about it. Don't buy too much really turn the dial up on buying used goods. It's a really, for an individual, a really easy way to make some impact in your own consumption. Care for it, repair it, maintain it. And then when you're done, find ways to pass it on back into a, another cycle. So for me, those five steps are, are hope, hopefully for an individual, an easy way for them to kind of really, really go there and really essentially be like living the circular economy. <laughs> Um, of course, there are points on that cycle that are hard, right? Like, let's say you want to get your thing repaired and there's no repair shop anywhere near you. Um, that's, that's you know, what are you going to do? So that is where I think the, the, the sort of call to action for businesses comes in um, and policymakers, but especially businesses, because my, my sort of argument to big businesses, large and small in the book, is that they can transform their business model essentially by by diversifying their revenue stream. Like so many manufacturers and retailers are making the, the vast bulk of their money from selling new goods, like period. And so as companies begin to offer reuse, to offer refurbishment, repair, service, they are going to make it easier for people to engage in those patterns, but they're also going to be able to grow without extracting so many new materials. I mean, it's really, really simple. And I think it's many, many businesses are, some are like all like totally going for it and some are just dipping their toe in the water. But I think it is, um, it's kind of the only way forward, both from an environmental and frankly, from an economic perspective, I think. Definitely. I feel like um, 
a lot of people or a lot of companies in general are kind of using COVID-19 as a moment to like pause and re reset and try to figure out a better way to move forward. Um, and also in your book, in the author's note, you acknowledge the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of what you write. Um, I hope that as we rebuild, we might reimagine our relationship with our stuff, with the planet and with one another. Um, and earlier in our conversation, you mentioned like, we're going to buy stuff, we're going to consume things. But I'm curious if, um, or like how you envision post-COVID spending in, in consumption, what do you think that should look like? And how do you think it should be different? So this is like, it's funny, you read those words that was in, I think I wrote those in April. So it was so early in the pandemic, you know, but um, mm-hmm. here we are still in it. And, uh, and, and so for me, the, the, like my like hopeful thing that we will focus ourselves on as we think about how to transform our economy, our business model, um, our values, like dare I say it is for me comes to this word of care Like, so I think it's one of the things that the pandemic has exposed among so many is that um, we don't really value care in our society. Like the people who perform work of care, whether it's like in my case, repairing blenders, which is not super essential, but also um, childcare, health work, teachers, um, home health aides, like all elder care, all of that is care work, maintenance, maintaining the subways, um, maintaining our infrastructure, like that work of caring literally for each other, for the things that support our lives is so important and so undervalued in our society. And it's not just like an abstract value thing. It is like literally undervalued. Like the people who perform care jobs in our society are, they're largely women and people of color. They tend to be paid about $11 less per hour on average. Um, care and maintenance work is typically underfunded. So for me, the the if there's like a way to think about it is to say, how can we invest in care, right? So if I'm an individual, for me, reuse is, is also tied to care. It's like saying, hey, that chair has value. It was in somebody's home and I'm actually going to bring it into mine. I'm going to kind of acknowledge and respect the the and take care of this thing in the world and then maybe I'll repair it and maybe I'll pass it on to somebody else and in the course of those actions I hope that I'm investing in my local economy so that the people who do the work of reuse and repair and passing things on can pay their rent doing it like that was my dream in these repair shops was that my fixers you know and me we you know would be able to pay our rent someday in New York City fixing people's greasy toasters (laughs) and so so I think like, um, I think that is like the COVID opportunity is to say, um, and I think for businesses, there is an opportunity. I think people are willing, like even in my shops pre-COVID, people are willing to invest and to pay for care and to value it if you make it a little easier for them. The problem right now is that the barriers are so high. It's just such a huge pain in the butt to do that. But if we can... Um, ease the barriers from like a sort of user customer experience point of view and also like learn from the lessons of COVID of why we need to invest in care. That's my hope. I think it's a great point and I hope that we all heed heed your vision and (laughs) hopefully make the change. Um, Thank you so much, Sandra, for sharing your work and your vision for what 
a post-COVID <laughs> pandemic uh, spending and consumption should look like and also your vision just for like what a circular economy can look like for us. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. I feel I feel um, optimistic. I think we can do it. We can do this. <laughs> And before we sign off, I want to give a number of shout outs to uh, the Verge team, the whole Green Biz team, but particularly to Shauna Rappaport, the vice president and executive director of the Verge conference, who really spearheaded, not just uh, emceed the event, but what really is respons- as responsible as anybody for pulling it all together. And behind her are analyst Jim Giles on food and carbon, Sarah Golden on energy, Katie Fehrenbacher on transportation, mobility, and Lauren Phipps and Suze Oki on uh, the circular economy. Uh, just a great, great effort. And, and Heather, you had, uh, <laughs> you have to tell me the stats, how many different journalists covering this for Green Biz? Uh, over a dozen, I think, or close yes, to that? Yes, definitely over a dozen. We've got uh, close to 30 stories planned over the next few weeks. And of course, more podcast clips here. So yeah, tons of coverage. So kudos to you for pulling that all together while you were uh, doing your own interviews and on, on stage and moderating sessions and, and everything else. Um, you know, it uh, all was part of this great team effort. So thank you to the Green Biz team. Thank you to the Verge community for showing up in every sense of the word. Uh, we're looking forward already to Verge 21 and, and a number of things you're going to start to see happening around Verge over the course of the year, not having to wait until next October. But for now, that's our 350 podcast for this week from Verge 20. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and other things we've mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our newsletters. We have six of them and you can subscribe to each and every one of them. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. We welcome your comments, questions and tips. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Have a great, safe Halloween, and please, please vote. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by IHG Hotels and Resorts, home to some of the world's most well-loved hotel brands in more than 100 countries. Its commitment to protect the planet and care for communities comes naturally to a business that stands for providing true hospitality for everyone. Visit IHGPLC.com for more information.